0: All right. First of all, hello to all of you who are watching in the North Auditorium or watching online around the world or watching television. Thank you for checking us out. Okay, Chasing the Star, what's it about? Well, I, if you grew up with Christmas tradition, I think you probably at least know a little bit about it, that it's, it's about the wise men who followed the star and came to Jesus. But in 2016, your life and my life, uh, what's it about for us? You remember when you are in college? Maybe some of you are there right now, some of you haven't gotten gotten there yet, but let me just tell you this about college, um, on the, on, and we're getting close to finals, on the, on the morning of a final, the most important person on campus is somebody who's already taken the exam. <laughs> right? Am I wrong? I mean, you know, it's a per- that person gets to be a celebrity. If you, you've already had the exam and the prophet's going like, to give the same exam every hour, it's like, oh, tell me what's on the test, and it's always good to get a preview, Right? Unless you're a college professor here saying, Mark, that's not really good. You're you're teaching bad ethics at church. Um, But the thing is today, this this series is all about you getting a copy of the exam before you face God. Because one thing that we need to understand about God is is when he grades us, he's going to grade us on one thing. And that is how did we respond to the light that is in our lives. Because we don't all get the same amount of light. See, God wants to be discovered, but he's in a different world. And so consequently, he leaves light in our world to help us discover him. And for some of us, we we came into this world with a very bright light. Perhaps our parents and grandparents had been people of faith. And so from the earliest of ages, they taught us about who God is and who Jesus is. And so consequently, we had this bright light in our lives. Others, I have a friend who is a non-theist, and there hasn't been faith in his family for generations. And so consequently, there's just a tiny crease of light. But when God evaluates us, he's not going to evaluate us on on how much we knew about him. He's going to evaluate us based on how we responded to the light that was in our lives. Did we ignore it? Did we see it? Did we follow it? Or did we chase it? This is all about light chasers. This series is about some people who chased the light that was in their lives. And they, as we're going to see today, didn't start out with just a whole lot of light There was a crease, and they saw it, they seized it, and they chased it. Well, let me just start with a little bit of information about the story itself. You know, if you grew up like I did in church or just in America, and you grew up with the Christmas tradition, you're familiar with the creche scene or the nativity scene. There's Mary and Joseph, the baby, the shepherds, the animals, and then oftentimes we see some men, three ordinarily, dressed in very regal Uh, clothing, and they are there opening gifts to present to the baby Jesus. And most of us know them either as the wise men or the magi. But I want to tell you, although we're comfortable and familiar with that, if you just think about the unlikelihood of this happening, I think it will help you understand why we're going to spend five weeks talking about them. Let's go with this. The magi were the most intelligent people in the world. For a a millennium, for for at least a 1,000 years, each of the cultures had developed a group of intelligentsia who observed life, left their contributions. The next generation of intelligentsia that came along absorbed those observations and added their own, so much so that these guys became a think tank for the world. The Chaldees had them, the Babylonians had them, the Jewish people had them. For instance, let me give you an example, this is TMI, but if you're holding a Bible in your lap, at least two of the books are part of a genre of literature called wisdom literature. I don't, again, I'm really off on a side trail here and I apologize for this, but how many of you have ever read the book of Ecclesiastes and you found this little prepositional phrase occurring again and again under the sun? Have you seen that? You've seen Solomon write about, oh, I observe this under the sun. Well, under the sun was an intelligentsia, magi, wisdom, literature, expression. It's just basically, we don't know what's going on outside our world, but we have observed what's going on in the world. And so under the sun, this is our observation. And so by the time Jesus comes along, there have been generations of these magi or wise people. Um, As I said, you know, there was the Babylonian regime. And the Babylonian regime, if you, let me just kind of talk through the regimes that these guys would have ex, at least experienced the history of, and maybe it will help you understand it if I apply American cities to these regimes. Babylon was like Hollywood. Hollywood, I mean, you know, Holly, in fact, it's interesting. Sometimes Hollywood is actually referred to itself as Babylon. Babylon was glitz, glamour, and money. So consequently, the Babylonian regime had come along. That's like Hollywood. And then Babylon was conquered by the Medes and Persians. The Persians were the most efficient of all the cultures. They were like Wall Street. They, they were all into what's a better way of doing things. The Persians were basically pretty genteel captors because they were all about what is efficient. And then after the Persians came the Greeks. And I don't need to, if you've been to the university, I don't need to tell you about the Greeks. You know some of the Greek wise people, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And so the Greeks brought along intellectualism and philosophy. The Greeks were sort of like the Ivy League schools. And then there was Rome. Rome was muscle. I don't know that Rome was I don't think Rome was the slightest bit innovative. They just borrowed from everybody else's culture and flexed their muscle. Rome was like Washington, D.C. (laughs) I didn't mean that. I'm just trying to give you some idea. So by the time these Majak came along, they had all the observations of Hollywood, all the observations of Wall Street, all the observations of the Ivy League, and all the observations of, of, of Washington, D.C. And, and so by Jesus' time, these were very, very brilliant people. And man, again, I know this is TMI, but I just want to introduce you to the wise men. And I want you to understand who came and bowed down before baby Jesus when one culture conquered another culture, they pretty well left the wise men alone. They left the intelligentsia, the wise women, the wise men, the people who had spent their life observing life. They pretty well were sacrosanct and untouchable. And because of that, they were very wealthy, and they had prestige, and everybody looked up to them. They were the world's think tank. Now, with that in mind, I want you to wrap your mind around something if you can. These these intellectuals, These brilliant thinkers dropped everything, left their world, and on their own nickel traveled halfway across the world to bow before a peasant baby. And when you look at the language in the Gospel of Matthew, they didn't just like go down to a knee. They fell prostrate on their faces. Think about this. The world's smartest people traveling halfway across the world on their own nickel bringing gifts falling before the manger or the bed of a peasant baby and worshiping this baby. Doesn't that beg the question why? Why would they do that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, if they had gone to the palace in Egypt or or Rome or in Asia Minor, if they had gone to some palace, and even Jerusalem, if they had bowed down before a prince or a princess, we just said, oh, we sort of get that. But they didn't. Why? Well, in order to understand this, you have to go back 500 years before. Because you see, the reason why they did this, the reason they followed this trail, the followed the star, was there was a trailblazer. There was someone who lived 500 years before, and his impact was so great that not only did he impact his own generation, He left such an impact that 500 years later, these most intelligent people dropped everything and went to chase a star and kneel down before a baby. His name is Daniel. And there's a book in the Bible. In fact, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. There's a a book in the Bible that tells his story and leaves his prophecies. But before we start talking about Daniel, let's just talk about you and me for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I think everybody here would want to raise his hand or her hand. How many of you want to leave a mark? In the world. We are going to leave the world. You do know that, right? Like Charles said last week, death runs in all our families. And I mean, I'm just asking you, how many of you want the world to be a better place than it was when you found it? You me? Okay, let, let's ask this question. What's your most powerful tool? What is the most powerful tool that you have to make a difference in the world? What are you going to put in that blank? Now, here's the thing. A lot of people are going to put some things in that blank that are not their most powerful tool and beyond that aren't all that effective. For instance, some people would look at this blank and say, my most powerful tool is power. It is having that title. It is having that parking space. It is having that insignia on your shoulders. It is having that, that understanding that you're a powerful person because of the title that you carry. Well, that is powerful to a point. I mean, if you are a commander, if you're CEO, if you, if you are lead partner, there is a certain power that you have. But let me ask you a question. Just being honest with me, how many of you think that's going to outlive you? I don't even think it'll last as long as you last. There's something about people who have had power. After a while, they go into a season where they're not as powerful. And even though they may have had a title in the past, it doesn't outlive them. It doesn't even last as long as they do. Okay, let's go to the one that Americans love the most. Let's say your most powerful tool is money. And Lord knows if you've got money, you can get people to do what you want them to do. Right? We see that all the time. Rich people, rich people can buy stuff. And so money is power, and I'm not going to denigrate that. It is power, but the problem is eventually you're going to run out of money or you'll run out of time. And money your money will not outlast you as far as being a tool to change the world most likely. Well, let's go to another one. Hey, I read all these articles, you know, from Forbes and Fortune about personal appearance. And there, there's just no getting around the fact that people who have sex appeal enjoy a measure of success that others of us do not enjoy. I mean, there's something about if a guy is so tall, if a woman is so attractive, they're just going to get more done in the world. And sex appeal, I will hand you, sex appeal has power. But for all of you who are 25 years old and that is your plan, let all the rest of us tell you who are older that time is going to do a number on that. (laughs) And your sex appeal will not outlast you. Well, the one that Americans are into right now, especially in the social media era, is fame. Because truth be told, if you're famous people, if you've got so many people following you on Twitter, well, you have a certain amount of power, but you know what? This world has a way of setting up its heroes and knocking them down, right? What is your most important tool to leave this world a better place? You ready? Influence. See, influence is not the muscle of a title. It is not the carrot before the horse, like money. Influence is there's something about you, maybe without the title, without paying anybody to do anything, without you being the most attractive person in the world, without you even being famous, there is something about you that causes other people to think in certain ways and do certain things. So we're asking the question, why would the smartest people in the world drop everything on their own nickel, go halfway across the world, and bow face down before a peasant baby? I will tell you, it was because 500 years before, there was a person who had enormous influence. His name is Daniel. Now, just so that you will think that Daniel did not enter life juiced up with all the blessings and perks of life, let me just tell you this. Number two, Daniel started life in an ugly place. I'll go through this real quickly so that you will understand. Daniel was not born, had a good time to be born. Um, because, you see, his people had been flipping God off for, for hundreds of years. And God had warned them, if you don't quit flipping me off, and by that I mean they were worshiping idols, they had borrowed gods from the other cultures, and they were dissing God, and they were worshiping these false gods. And God had said to them, look, if you don't quit doing that, I'm going to let you go into captivity. And not only am I going to let you go into captivity, I'm going to let you go into captivity to the Babylonians. Well, the the Jewish people said, God is just, you know, he's just jerking our chain. I mean, for one thing, he's not going to let us go into captivity. We're his chosen people. And if he was going to let us go into captivity, he wouldn't let us go into captivity to Babylon because, like, Babylon is the anti-God culture. Babylon's like the worst people in the world. And so surely God's just trying to scare us. But by the time Daniel is born, it's very clear God isn't trying to scare them. Most of the country's already gone into captivity, and the Babylonians are at the gate, and here's Daniel. And Daniel's in an ugly place because the Babylonian people are about to capture his country, strip his country of all authority, and force him to live a life he doesn't want to live. He's in an ugly place. Oh, let me add this to it. When the Babylonians took over a country... They wanted to pull the best and brightest young people out. In other words, if the Babylonians captured your country and you were really smart and attractive and you were an A student and you just were quick to pick things up, the Babylonians wanted to take a sampling from a captured people and brainwash them and indoctrinate them into the Babylonian way of life so that they, in a perverse sense, would actually become missionaries for Babylonian culture back to their own people. Well, Daniel was five Beta cap, on, so consequently, he was one of the first ones they pulled out and said, hey... You're going to be forced to be brainwashed. We're going to change your name. Daniel means God is my judge. His name was changed to the worship of Baal. And on top of that, we're going to take you away from your culture. You're going to have to learn the Babylonian language. You've got to go to our university, and you're going to have to work for the Babylonian government the rest of your life. Daniel started out in an ugly place. Let me ask you a question, and you don't need to respond to me. How many of you are in an ugly place today? You didn't get a vote. You didn't get a vote in how your husband treated you. You didn't get a vote in the decision that your wife made. You didn't get a vote in what your parents did to leave you where you are. You didn't get a vote in regard to where life has put you. You're in an ugly place and you didn't get a vote. What do you do when you're in that scenario? And I'm guessing that some of us are really there today and all of us are there to some some extent. Listen, guys. When life puts you in an ugly place, as it always will, you have two choices. Here they are. First of all... When you're in an ugly place, you can choose to see it as a crippling excuse. And many people do. Pity, self pity. Well, I'm in an ugly place. Well, why don't why don't you perform up to expectations? Well, life put me in an ugly place. Why don't you function? Well, I'm in an ugly place. And, and, and it can be somewhat comforting, but here's the thing if we're in an ugly place and we in an ugly place and we choose to make it a crippling excuse. Although other people may be sympathetic with us for a while, have you ever found out that when you're in an ugly place and you're shutting down and you tell your story, there's a point where people get tired of hearing your story? I mean, at first it's like, oh, I'm really sorry for you. And it's like, oh, no, here he comes again. I mean, that's what happens when you, when, you, when you see life as a crippling excuse. And, and here's the deal. Not ripping any of that. I totally get it. I've been there myself. But here's the thing I want to say to you. Uh, you could hear me say this, and you could say, Mark, I don't think you're being fair to me. Life is putting me in an ugly place, and I'm hurting. And I totally get that. All I'm saying is, do you want to see it as a crippling excuse? Do you want to see it as the asterisk beside your life that says, he shut down here, and here's why? Here's the thing. You can either see an ugly place as a crippling excuse or you can, look, you, can, you can decide to look at it as the opportunity of a lifetime. That's what Daniel did. I mean, one more time, he was ripped away, taken away captive. His name got changed. He was forced to live in a culture he didn't want to live in. He, you know, he was forced to learn a language he didn't speak. He was forced to go to university he didn't want to go to. He was forced to think about thoughts he didn't want to think, And most of all, he was forced to serve the conquering power that had destroyed his nation. But he decided to look at it as the opportunity of a lifetime. And I'm not just blowing sunshine at you. Let me tell you how that works out practically. Have you ever stopped to think about the fact that a perfect world doesn't need you? That's right. Strange, isn't it? We're all so busy looking for a perfect world. Do you know that the word complete is a synonym for perfect? A complete, a complete world doesn't need you. A complete world has no room for you. It's already complete. Isn't that strange? We, we spend our life looking for the perfect woman, but the perfect woman wouldn't need a husband. It's like, well, my wife's not perfect. Duh, that's why you're here. Quit fighting her and help her. A perfect man wouldn't need a wife. Perfect kids wouldn't need parents. a perfect a perfect workplace wouldn't need you a perfect boss wouldn't need you you know here's the thing we you and i have been summoned into ugly places why is that it is because A broken world needs you. The very essence of brokenness appearing in your life, the ugly place that you are in is God's way of summoning you in. And and, and I don't mean by this the, the things that have happened to you that are bad. I don't mean that God is behind those things. It's just that life is ugly. And when we're summoned into an ugly place, we have the choice to look at this not as a crippling excuse, but the opportunity of a lifetime. Let me put this in practical terms. And I'm not trying to be geopolitical in any sense. I'm just trying to get you to understand something. Suppose, God forbid, America was taken captive by a radicalized nation. And you were taken away. And you were told, your name is not anglicized anymore. You have a new name that worships the God that this radicalized power worships. And beyond that, you're not going to have any choices anymore. You're going to be told to learn this culture. You're going to go to the university, and you're going to serve this radicalized power so that you actually can become an influence on your own people for this radicalized power. We are going to brainwash you to do this. Now, imagine that your influence was so powerful that you actually changed that regime And instead of that regime brainwashing you, you actually begin to influence them for good. And your influence is so powerful that 500 years, the remnants of that power will go looking for Jesus. That is exactly what Daniel did. Precisely. See, if I were to give you that scenario in the world that we live in today, we would shake our heads and say, there's no way that happened. But it did happen. It did happen. Daniel started life in an ugly place. When you're in an ugly place, you have a choice. Now, for a few moments, let's just talk about Christmas because Christmas is about Jesus coming into our world. And it could be that someone is saying, Mark, I just don't even like to think about the idea of being summoned into an ugly place. Let me read you a couple of scriptures about Jesus. Here's the first one. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45, the Bible says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. So when you think about Jesus coming into our world, he didn't come into our world so that he could lie on a hammock, drink lemonade, have everybody come and, ignore, you know, come and look at how wonderful he was. He came to serve. But let me show you this next verse. Because if you're in an ugly place today and life has summoned you into darkness, even though God is not responsible for the harm that has been done to you, I want you to see what being in an ugly place can do. This is in the book of Hebrews. Therefore, there are two words I want you to look at. It was, this is the first one, it was what? Necessary. Therefore, let's say it out loud just so that we'll get it. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is, here's the next word, say it out loud. Able to help us when we are being tested. See, that's the thing. There's something about going into a dark place that life summons you into and seeing it as the opportunity of a lifetime because the perfect world doesn't need you. There is something about being summoned into a dark place, seeing it as an opportunity that equips you to help other people. I mean, Daniel could have been taken away to Babylon and said, this is the end of my life. I quit. I give up. I check out. I turn off. But instead, Daniel said, hey, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I have been summoned close to power in the regime that rules the world. And Daniel was saying, instead of Babylon, Babylon influencing me, I'm going to go there and God influence Babylon. And he did. He did. For the next few minutes, this message is going to turn intensely practical. Because I started off this message by telling you that influence... Is your most powerful tool. For just a few moments, I want to talk to you about the mechanics of influence. I want to talk about the practical, the, the, the practical aspects of, of influence. What does it take to be able to influence people? Man, I'm so glad Daniel left us a, a, a schematic here. There are three things that, are, well, two things that are essential and three things that are good. Let me give them to you real quickly. Here's the first one. Excellence in everything you do. See, one of the things, you know, here's the deal. And, and I know that there are many here today who might not be Christ followers yet. Let me, let me just talk to Christians for a moment. A lot of times Christians, Christians feel like the rest of the world doesn't listen to them. And we tend to think, oh, it's because of our, our belief. You know what? I, I don't, I'm just being honest with you here today. I really think the reason why Christians have a hard time in our world is not so much about what we believe. I think it's just the fact that in a lot of cases we don't feel like we have to be excellent because we're Christians. Boy, it's getting quiet in here. That's true. I mean, it's like, you know, I'm a Christian, I know God, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, I'm going to heaven, I can mail it in. Now, here's the thing I want you to look at in the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verse 3, because remember, he's been jerked away from his people, forced to live a life he doesn't want to live. But notice, here's here's what happened every time he served one of these godless powers. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents because, and I love these two words, an excellent spirit was in him. And then because of that, the king wanted to set him over the entire range. What is an excellent spirit? Well, the best synonym for spirit there is attitude. Daniel had an attitude of excellence. See, put yourself in his place in just a moment because he's Jewish and he's nothing, they don't expect much. I mean, after all, the Babylonians feel superior. Anyway, we beat them. So, consequently, we got these Jewish kids in our university. We don't expect a whole lot of them. They're not as smart as we are because we conquered them. They didn't conquer us. But all the time, it's like, boy, have you seen that kid, Daniel? I mean, you know, I mean, he's like one of the brightest kids in the class, you know? And man, you, did you read that dissertation he wrote? Man, that was, that was post grad level. And then he's valedictorian. I mean, it's really kind of cool. They're having a the Babylonian graduation valedictorian tonight, Daniel. Then he goes to work for the government. It's like, well, we don't expect a whole lot of him. He doesn't know our ways. And all of a sudden it's like, well, you know what? That's a tough job. Give it to Daniel. Put Daniel in charge. He had an attitude of excellence. Now, when I use the word are here, I'm not talking about a new age concept. I'm just saying you and I have sort of a a zone around us that people identify with or look at on a daily basis. What would be what the world would say about you. You have a blank attitude or an attitude of blank. Would they say, Mark has a poor to fair attitude. He's an underperformer. He did not really bring his best. He comes to work with attitude. He expects the world to be given to him on a plate. He's got a poor to fair attitude. Or could somebody say, oh, Mark's got a a mediocre attitude. You know, sometimes he's on, sometimes he's not. Some days he comes to work and he's a ball of fire. Other days he comes to work and he's just zoned out. Mark's got a mediocre attitude. Or would they say Mark's got a pretty good attitude? He's sort of a B-minus player. And he's sort of B-minus. Or could they say about me, Mark has an attitude of excellence. Everything he touches is Excellent. He always brings his A-game. Whether it's something, it's a big project or it's a tiny project nobody's going to see, I would hope that people can say that about me. See, here's the thing. This is so important for all of us, no matter what your age. An attitude of excellence puts you in a place where people will listen to you. It doesn't mean they will listen to you yet. It just strategically places you in a spot where you could have influence. Because I just don't think anybody is going to be influenced by a mediocre person, a person who's always offering excuses, a person who doesn't bring her A game, a guy who doesn't give it his best all the time. So let's just start out with this. We're talking about what are the mechanics of influence. It all starts off with willing to be excellent. But here's the thing. By itself, it will not get you influence. You must add this second component to it, and that is this. After you are excellent, it is the courage to risk it all in order to do the right thing. Are you listening to New Spring Church? Most excellent people will not risk the perks that excellence has won them. Because see, here's the thing. When we are excellent and we begin to experience the good things that come from excellence, we can say, okay, now I'm set for life and we tend not to risk them. And I don't talk a lot about tithing here, but tithing is what Christians do. You bring a tenth of your income to God, to the place where you worship. Do you know that people who make under $20,000 a year tithe at levels eight times higher than people who make over $75,000 a year? You know why that is? When we start enjoying the perks of excellence, it's mine. So I just want you to understand that being excellent by itself will not get you influence. Influence comes when, after you've been excellence and you've won the perks, you're willing to push all the chips in the middle of the table to do the right thing. This is always happening with Daniel. About, you know, we'll talk about this later. But he's told, hey, you have to eat meat that's dedicated to idols. And Daniel's saying, look, you can change my name and I'll go to your university and I'll work hard for you. But I'm not going to do something that flips off my God. And then there was a time when he was told, you know, they were looking at him to be over the entire kingdom, and they made this crazy rule that said you couldn't pray. And Daniel said, you know what? I don't kill me if you want to throw me to the lions. I'm going to pray. There is something about being excellent, and after you're excellent and you enjoy the perks of that success, you are willing to push it all to the middle of the table. Do the right thing. At that moment, the world will follow you anywhere because you know what you've just communicated. You have just communicated that you know why you're here. You know your purpose. That even though you're excellent and you've won the the winnings of that you are willing to risk it all, to do the right thing, people will follow you anywhere because this world is desperately craving somebody who is about something so much that they will give it their all and yet turn around and risk it all to do the right thing. Parents, I just explained to some of you why you are top performers at your game and you still can't get your kids to listen to you. Because your kids respect the fact that you're a success. But they are watching to see if there's something you care about so much, you would risk everything to do the right thing. Let me throw in this third wild card. It's not essential, but it's sure nice. And I do this because New Spring tends to be such a young church. Daniel started it all when he was young. See, that's the thing. The world tells you today, you know what? If you're young, hey, man, you don't have to take life seriously. Just, you know, stay in your parents' basement, play video games. I mean, just... You know, you can start being serious when you're 40. Hey, let me tell you, if you're in your parents' basement playing video games when you're 20, you probably will be there when you're 40. I think one of the biggest rip-offs in our world today is that young people are not challenged to be great. Because, see, here's the thing. I'm sorry for telling you a story, but... My wife likes to listen to my old sermon series. And when I say old sermon series, I don't mean something five years ago. She likes a series I preached twenty five years ago. It's not even for sale. When I was wasn't even thirty five yet. And and I'm preaching on Revelation, I preached a whole year or fifty two weeks out of Revelation. That's a long time to be in one series. But she still likes to listen to that series. So every once in a while, I get in her van and, you know, in her playlist, there's one of those old sermons. And I got in her van the other day and I turned it on and there was this message I preached in the book of Revelation and I was telling a story I'd forgotten. See, when you've been preaching as long as I have, you can listen to an old sermon and say, well, I've never heard that before. That's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Or I'll be listening to one of those old talks saying, wonder where he's going with that. (laughs) Sad part, that's really true. But I was telling the story that I'd forgotten. I, I graduated from high school early, or at least I left high school early because I completed everything. So I, I left it at the semester turn. So even after I I'd, I'd, I'd technically had, had graduated from high school, I got a call from the principal's office that I'd won an award. And I, I won some awards. Most of them were attached to forensic speaking, but this is a word that was my most favorite at the time because a business group in Texas had young, named me Young Texan of the Month. And being a Texan, see, here's the thing. Texans are insufferable, right? I mean, we just are. I mean, I don't know. You, they always say you can tell a Texan, you just can't tell them anything. I mean, that, that's... But you have to understand, we were indoctrinated when we were growing up. My grandfather used to tell me, Mark, never ask a man if he's from Texas. He said, if he's from Texas, he'll tell you. And if he's not, there's no sense shaming the man. I mean, that, that's just, that is the way I grew up. Now, 32 years in Kansas has gotten me straightened out. But I remember winning Young Texan of the Month, and I was really proud of that. So I was being told that there was this luncheon that was being given by all these business types, and I was supposed to come down and receive an award. So I dressed up in my suit, my tie, my pocket square. I'm 17 years old. I go there, and I think they're going to call me up. I'm going to receive this award, and, um, and I'm going to sit down. Because I had asked ask my parents to come, too. So I'd gone to this luncheon, and and the elite business people of Texas are city around here, and and so I discovered not only were they going to call me up and give me the award, they wanted me to give a speech, an extemporaneous talk. I was freaked out by that. But not, not being prepared for that moment, I just stood up and said, let me tell you who I am. My name is Mark Hoover, and, and I'm graduate. I'm graduate of Moody White High School in Fort Worth. And, and my goal in life, and I started sharing with him what God had done and how he summoned me into ministry and how that I believed it was my role to someday pastor a great church in a place that might be underserved. And so I just was talking about that. When I got through talking, I mean, these guys rushed toward me. I mean, I could see the big classrooms from the various universities. I mean, I thought—I thought I, I, thought I knew—I know how the prettiest school in school feels at prom time because it was like all these guys were I mean, like. There was the TCU contingent that came toward me and they said, "Hey, we need you at TCU. We'll help you get into TCU. We'll help you. We'll do whatever it takes to get you at TCU. We have a school of divinity. It's called Bright Divinity School. You will love it." And the SMU guys were saying, "Don't listen to the TCU guys. You want to go to SMU, and SMU is where you need to be. You need to go to Dallas, and it'll be great." And then there was the Texas A&M guys, and they're totally different. The Texas A&M guys were saying, "You don't want to mess with any of these schools." you want to go to Texas a and let me ask you a question would those guys listen to me today no they listen to me for one reason I was 17 years old I'm talking to some of you who are young here today and you say Mark I grew up in a home and, and my parents are excellent but they don't risk anything for God alright I'm sorry about that but you can you can Hey, we respect youth here at New Spring. I walked around this morning and I saw junior high kids with the lanyard around their neck. I knew they were gonna volunteer in one of our environments. I look at young people here and this is the reason why kids are everything to us at New Spring because we believe that kids are actually capable of being excellent in everything they do, being willing to risk it all, do the right thing and do it when they're young. Those people will change the world. They will leave an impact for generations to come. You check, when we get to heaven, we'll talk about this. That clock says I have 15 seconds to do three points. <laughs> okay, next statement. We'll just, we'll breeze by this. We'll talk about it next week. This formula, excellence, courage to risk when he was young. This formula survived change in Daniel's lifetime. Do you realize that right in Daniel's lifetime, the Babylonians were conquered, that he worked for, and the Persians took over? And not only did he shoot to the top as a Babylonian aristocrat and Babylonian um, governor he shot to the top in Persia I mean that's right, do you realize that when he, when he told them he wasn't going to eat the king's meat he was a young man in Babylon when he told them he was going to pray anyway he was an old man in Persia you know we talk a lot about what's portable today right we look at a degree and we say is that degree portable can it, can it go from one field to the next man you talk about portable Daniel went from one regime to the next regime We'll talk about that next week. Okay, practical. Close down. How did the wise men know? I mean, it was 500 years after Daniel was, was around. How did they know to chase the star? Guys, this is huge because I want to tell you something. You and I are living in a similar time frame. I don't know how many of you will watch NFL football today, but most, a lot of us will. And I can't remember which network does this, but one of the networks when, when an offense is in the red zone, there'll be like some kind of like a little indicator on the screen that'll say red zone. Red zone is what? You're inside the 20-yard line? You're in scoring position? Red zone. If you don't watch football, you're like, what in the world is Mark talking? <laughs> it means you're in a zone where something could happen. Now, here's the thing that's so important. Let me make sure I give you this the right way. The reason why the wise men went looking for Jesus was Daniel left them a map. And that map consisted of two things. It consisted of a sort of timetable and a promise from God. Let me explain. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 25 through 27, Daniel had said, guys, let me just tell you, according to a prophecy God has given me in 483 years, the Messiah, the man who will change the world, the Messiah will be cut off and it will look like he didn't accomplish anything. Daniel said 483 years. You know, that's, that's not a rounded off number. That's 483 years. So when Daniel said cut off, they knew that he meant he was going to die young. So consequently, they were looking forward in time, and all these generations of Magi have been looking and saying, okay, in 483 years, we have a a cap date, we have an end date, and Messiah's going to be cut off. It means he's going to die young. So we started looking, and they they were in the red zone. They knew, okay, um, a person that might be young, die young, maybe he's going to be born this year, maybe he's going to be born in five years, but we know we're in the red zone." But not only had he left them a timetable, he had left them a promise. See, back in Numbers 24, verse 17, there was a prophecy set that said that the coming of Messiah would be associated with a star, at least a heavenly body. We don't know exactly what it was. So they had that. They had a promise. There's going to be a star. And these guys were pros when it came to constellations in the heavens. There's going to be a star. In fact, one of the writers in the first century said that the star was so bright that the rest of the stars couldn't be seen. There's going to be a star, and they had a timetable. They didn't have an exact date, but they had a working cap. And so, when they were in that zone, and they saw the star, they said, there it is, and here we go. And they were so certain. You remember what they asked Herod when they got to Jerusalem? Where, we, where is he that is born King of the Jews, we have seen his star and we are come to worship him. Daniel had left them a timetable and a promise, and when they saw the star, they acted on it. Let me tell you why you and I are living in the same kind of time frame right now. We're not looking for Jesus to come the first time, we're looking forward to come back. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus preached a sermon, and here's what he said He said, Jerusalem will be trodden under the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Well, for 2,500 years, that held true. From the time Daniel went into captivity until 1948, Israel did not exist as a nation. But if you were around, I wasn't around in 1948, but if you were around in 1948, you know that Israel became a sovereign nation. Harry Truman led the United States to be the first country that recognized Israel as a nation, but they still didn't have Jerusalem back. In fact, they, they thought they never would have Jerusalem back. They, in fact, they, they kind of kept hands off for Jerusalem so that the rest of the world wouldn't get upset. But in 1967, we had the Six-Day War. And in the Six-Day War, the nation of Israel recaptured the entire city of Jerusalem. Do you realize one of the biggest debates in America today is should the United States Embassy be in Tel Aviv where it is, or should we move it to Jerusalem? I, I'm saying we are living in the red zone. We have a date, and instead of it being a cap date, we have a beginning date. And that's already happened. We are in the red zone, and we have the promise of the Son of God, who the night he was with his disciples the last time said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, and I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. And the book of Revelation says God himself will be with us, and he will be our God, and we will be with him forever. We are in the zone. And there is a crease of light. Are you a light ignorer? You sit here and say I don't really know. What difference does it make? Fair? Are you a light follower? Well, I've heard lots of sermons on this, yeah. I think it'll probably happen someday. Are you a star chaser? See, when I got this series, I, I, I started to call it following the star, and I thought, no, it's not a strong enough verb. It's chasing the star. These are people who say, I have been put, I've been summoned into an ugly place, but it's okay because a perfect world wouldn't need me. I'm in an ugly world, and this world needs me, and I'm going to see it as the opportunity of a lifetime because I'm in the red zone, and Jesus is coming back, and I want to chase the star, and I want to follow him. I hope that's who you are today. Let me just give you one more thought, and then I'll be through. And that is the star chasers follow the light that they have. You got light today. I mean, it may be like me. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up in church. I had a whole lot of lights. Others of you say, Mark, I'm still not even sure I believe in God. But you got a little crease. Are you willing to chase the light that you have? I'm I'm sorry I'm in overtime. But I just don't know where this light finds you. Maybe you're that person that says, you know what, I need to be excellent. I've been mailing it in. Because I was in an ugly place and I thought it was an excuse, but I'm not going to use it for an excuse anymore. I'm going to start being excellent. And then beyond that, you could be being excellent already, but you're very protective of the perks that your excellence has won you. And you're quiet when you have the opportunity to do the courageous thing. Maybe today you're saying, I'm going to do that. And maybe I'm talking to a young person here today, and you are the one who has the potential to really rock this world. Young, and you're saying, you know what? I'm going to be excellent. And then after I'm excellent, I'm going to have the courage to risk it all, to do the right thing. And I'm going to do it when I'm young. Oh, you are the rock stars who will change the world and you will have such an impact that lives after you. It could just be you're here today and you're saying, Mark, I just need to have a relationship with God. I mean, how do I get connected with God? Well, remember, God wants to be discovered. So it's not like you're going to have to find him. He's not playing hide and seek. Jesus came into our world to live the life that you and I couldn't live. And then he died on the cross to pay for our sins. And if you want a relationship with him that's everlasting, it's free. Don't you love free things? But how about the greatest gift of all being free? It's free. And all you have to do is ask. You can't be perfect, and you can't undo the things you've done wrong, but you can ask, can't you? I'm going to pray a prayer that asks. And I'll pray it slowly, and you can decide if you want to own this and say it to God. You ready? Here we go. Dear God, I'm a flawed person, and I can't fix myself. I know I can't be perfect, but I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he's alive. I want Jesus as my savior. Help me to turn from my own way. Help me to follow Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me in Jesus' name. Hey, if you just prayed the prayer with me, I have something I want to give you. Whether you're in the South Auditorium or North Auditorium, there's an area called guest service. South Auditorium is right outside the door. North Auditorium is right around the corner. It's a Bible and a book I wrote. All you got to do is take your talk to us card and say, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back there. They will give this to you. Thank you so much for being here. Next week, we're going to a whole new place.